So you can turn with me to the Old Testament book of Ruth. I started a short series on it last week. Wasn't able to get all the chapters in, so I'm jumping from one to three. If you remember last week, we looked at three women. Uh, we looked at uh, Orpah, who was the almost believer. We looked at Ruth, who by God's grace was the new believer. And we looked at Naomi, who was the backslidden believer. So we looked at the way that God worked providentially in their lives and we come to chapter 3 of Ruth this afternoon. And next week, as you know, chapter 4, that wonderful chapter about the kinsman redeemer. But before we read together, let us bow on our heads as we pray together. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, I pray as we've already prayed that you would open our eyes and our hearts that we would see marvellous things out of your law for the glory of your name, for the good of your people. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give me the words to speak well of our Saviour, our kinsman Redeemer, our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. So this is the word of God, Ruth chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you? that it may be well with you. Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went down to lie at the end of the heap of grain. And then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do all for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you then, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognise another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment that you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. We thank the Lord for his holy and inerrant words. Ruth 3 is, without doubt, the most challenging chapter of the book of Ruth, but you can't miss it out. You can't go one, two, and four, but you can go one, three, and four. And if you start to read very quickly, you almost 
I don't know, wouldn't, wouldn't say go as far as cringe, but you kind of wonder what's going on as it is read. And it looks like a terrible wrong turn is about to be taken in Naomi and Ruth's spiritual journey. But it is arguably the most helpful chapter in Ruth. It is filled with moral ambiguities, to be sure, but it is filled with insight into the complexities and contradictions of even the redeemed human heart. It shows us ourselves and it overflows with intimations of God's providential sovereign grace that superintends even our foolishness, even our sin, for his glory and our good. We often pray that because it is so true. For his glory and for our good. And it leads us in the end wonderfully to the gospel of grace. Yes, it shows us ourselves, but it shows us Jesus. And in our chapter, the action takes place in three scenes at three different times of the day. Maybe that's helpful to remember that. Three different scenes at three different times of the day. In verses 1 through 5 of Ruth 3, which is this dialogue between Naomi and Ruth, probably happened in the late afternoon. After Ruth had come home from a day's gleaning in the fields, just as the sun began to wane. Then in verses 6 through 13, which is the central section, it plays out in the middle of the night. Once Boaz has fallen asleep on the threshing floor. And in verses 14 to 18, it is as the sun comes up on the next day. So as we watch the late afternoon shadows begin to gather, and I thought I saw a glimpse of sun on the way down here, so... We may be, you know, if you remember what it is, it's that yellow ball in the sky. And if you watch these late afternoon shadows begin to gather in the first part of Ruth 3, Naomi shares her wonder plan to secure Boaz for Ruth. It's basically her blueprint, her wonder plan, and we begin to feel a bit itchy, don't we? It's a little, we have a little more than a little dose of foreboding. It doesn't seem very wise. It's not what I give in marital counselling, I can assure you of that. So it's not marital counselling for dummies or marital counselling 101, whichever book you read or whichever book your pastor gave you. What is Naomi thinking? What is she thinking? And then we follow Ruth down onto the threshing floor and the tension mounts. It's a dangerous moment fraught with spiritual tension and moral alarm. And by now we always have our hands over our eyes unable to watch what is going on. Is this really going to be as bad as it looks? Is this another, you know, one of those scary stories out of Genesis kind of thing? What's going on? And then finally the sun comes up and there's a palpable sense of relief as we remind ourselves that Boaz, after all, is a man of God. That Boaz is a man of God. And Ruth really is a young woman of integrity. And God can never be outmaneuvered. God's sovereign plan can never be outmaneuvered by our own stupidity, by the wiles of Satan, and, you know, and by this harebrained plan of Naomi's. 
Not even by these Machiavellian schemes of this conniving mother-in-law. So Ruth 3 is a masterclass in Hebrew storytelling. But it is storytelling, as I want you to see, in the service of God's agenda for the welfare of our souls. So the first point I want you to see is the persistence of sin in a believing heart. And we know that, don't we? The persistence of sin in a believing heart. The last verse of Ruth 2 tells us that the barley and wheat harvests are over. So it's been several months since the idea first crossed Naomi's mind that Boaz is a very good candidate to rescue them from their destitution. So full of hope at the end of Ruth 2, Naomi's advice is stick close to Boaz, stick close to those young women that you've made acquaintance of, and let's just see where it goes. Let's just see where it goes. But now, months later, instead of a new husband for Ruth, all they have to show for that master plan is loads of grain. They've got lots of grain, but no husbands. But Naomi is quite undeterred. Look at her words in verse 1. My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? If you were to look at the book of Judges, specifically in chapter 3, verse 11 and verse 30, and chapter 5, verse 31, and 8, verse 28, again and again, during the period during which this takes place, Israel stayed faithful to the Lord, and the Lord gave Israel rest. And that is what Naomi wants for Ruth. Rest, security, peace. And verse 2 tells us, moreover, that Naomi knows in God's law there is a mechanism that made provision for precisely that eventuality. Is not Boaz our relative with whom the young women you were? So Boaz, Naomi knows, stands in a position to be the kinsman redeemer. He can fill the role of the husband and he can provide for the family and the preservation of the inheritance in the land, in the promised land. Naomi loves Ruth. Naomi has, if you like, good motivation. It's born out of a love for Ruth. She cares for her so very deeply. And it's important we understand those motives of Naomi's heart. Because otherwise things don't look very good for Naomi as the story develops. But she has good intentions. And look verses 2 and 5, 2 to 5. Naomi becomes impatient. She decides to give Boaz a not so subtle wink, or probably a slap over the head with a four by two. To, to make, to move him in the right direction. He says, see his winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor, and so forth. Now, no matter which way you pass that, no matter how I try and explain it, no matter if I tell you it was in Greek and it was in Armenian and I didn't really understand it, and it was, you know, I, I, try, and, I try and say, tell you it in Russian, which I wouldn't be able to do, or Greek, I could do it in German just about, 
It's a distressing piece of counsel. And some commentators, and actually some preachers I've heard, and my, you know, my first sermon I heard on this, go a little bit along this line, that Naomi's saying, put on your prettiest black dress, spray yourself with Chanel number no. five, and go and get a husband. That, you know, that is, well, you know, I've heard some preachers say that, I've read some commentaries, but I think that's an over-reading of the text. I really do. Because I think that much more plausible is that Ruth has been dressed up until this point in the garments of mourning. She's been a grieving widow. And perhaps Naomi has concluded that Boaz has kept his distance because Ruth is mourning. So by washing and perfuming herself and putting on her cloak, she's not dressing for like we would read back into it for seduction, but to tell Boaz her mourning is now over. And if he is interested in being the kinsman redeemer, he need not keep his distance any longer. But even so, whichever way, if that is the case, and I think it is the case, Naomi's advice is fraught with spiritual danger. It's one of those sermons where, he's like, where, I, where you definitely say, don't do that. Do you know what I mean? I mean, the, you know, the application is, do not do what Naomi told Ruth to do. It's dancing on the edge with hobnail boots on. But twice now, back in chapter 2, verse 9, on the lips of Boaz, and in chapter 2, verse 22, on the lips of Naomi, we're told of the potential for Ruth, you see, to be assaulted by young men. So it is a dangerous thing that they ask her to do. But driven by impatience, Naomi sends her vulnerable daughter-in-law to the threshing floor. And added to that evidence in Hosea 9, verse 1, where that's where prostitutes piled their plied their trade on the threshing floor, it is bad advice at the very best. And add to that further the parallels between this part of the chapter and Genesis 19, and spiritual alarm bells do go off loud and clear. In Genesis 19, his lot's two daughters have incestuous relations with their drunken father. And the firstborn child from that union was Moab, from where the Moabites come from. So perhaps Naomi assumed, that given the right circumstances, Ruth would revert to type her newfound faith in Israel's God notwithstanding? Did she think that the Moabite in her would shine through in the end, so why not make use of it well, and secure Boaz into the bargain? But while in Naomi's plan, she may have thought that Ruth the Moabitess would revert to type and repeat the sin with which the name of Moab is synonymous. In the end, it is Naomi, not Ruth, who bears the stamp of Moab more clearly. So what is the lesson? It is that you can take the child of God out of Moab, but it's not so easy to get Moab out of the child of God. Count, Naomi's counsel reads like the counsel of a pagan, hardly the godly counsel of a believing parent. But there's plenty of Moab about them, Plenty of Moab in Naomi's advice. And as a pastor, I wish I could say that Naomi's is an isolated case, but many, many times, in Vienna especially, 
Many young couples who professed faith in Jesus, planning to get married, no longer blush to tell me that they sleep together. Why, why would we not? Everyone else does. So there's plenty of Moab about them, profession of faith in Jesus notwithstanding. Don't think because you come back to Bethlehem that Moab can no longer rear its ugly head in your life. Beware of persistent sin. Don't think you can manage your sin. Don't think because you're a Christian that sin will just, just go away. Sin may slumber long and appear subdued in our hearts. And we may have many victories, but it's waiting to strike. Beware, beware, whoever you are, beware. And, you, and we read about pastors who lose their minds. Pastors who have such good ministries over many years suddenly have to resign because of sexual sin. And you think, well, what were they thinking? There, by the grace of God, go I. There, by the grace of God, we can never take our foot off the pedal of sanctification. Brothers and sisters, we need to use Naomi's example. What to do? That we would watch and pray, lest we fall into temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Romans 7 is so important, isn't it? Where Paul says, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So be on your guard, believer in Jesus. When you want to do what is right, evil lies close at hand. Remember Genesis 4, if you do well, will you not be accepted? But if you do not well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. You must rule over it. God may have brought you out of Moab by his grace. It will take a lifetime to get Moab out of you. So be on your guard and do not think that because you've come to know Jesus, you can let your guard down in the battle with sin. So the persistence of sin in a believing heart. Second lesson is the good news of rest for a restless heart. A beautiful truth of the book of Ruth. The good news of rest for an agitated, restless heart. The sun sets in verse 6, Ruth watches from the shadows as Boaz puts himself down, happy and weary, and she crept forward, uncovered his feet, and lay down just as her mother-in-law had advised. And at midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. I'm, I'm sure he was a bit. I'm not sure what startled him the most, the fact that his feet were not under the duvet, that's probably, that probably would wind me up probably a bit. Or a strange girl lying at his feet. So he says, who are you? And I think that's the mark of the godliness of Boaz, that that's all he said. He must have got a fright, the poor chap. I think I'd have jumped out of the window, let alone. But, but while Boaz is wiping, if you like, in a, his Hebrew storytelling, so I think we can embellish a bit, the sleep from his eyes and the drool from his chin, He's combing down his bed hair. Do you get bed hair? I do, anyway. And Ruth takes the initiative. And he said, who are you? And she said, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. 
She wasn't supposed to say that. She was just supposed to present herself to Boaz and see what happened. But Ruth has far more better moral instincts than Naomi. And the phrase that she used, spread your wings over me, can be translated, spread the corner of your garment over me. She's not trying to seduce Boaz. She is proposing marriage. Because the language is a euphemism for marriage in the Hebrew Bible. God uses it to describe his covenant relationship with Israel in Ezekiel 16 verse 8. One scholar commentates the establishment of a new relationship and the symbolic declaration of the husband to provide for his future wife, which is what Ruth is asking for. And to add to the drama, by framing her proposal in these terms, she's quoting words from the first time that she and Boaz met months before. Back in chapter 2, verse 12, Boaz said that Ruth had come to take refuge under the wings of the Lord. And now Ruth says to Boaz, spread your wings over your servant. Ruth is asking Boaz to be the instrument of God's love to her by fulfilling his obligations to be her kinsman redeemer. And one of the ways that the Lord will extend and spread his wings over Ruth in covenant love is by Boaz spreading his wings over her in the covenant of marriage. You can see why my son thinks that we should all have arranged marriages, can't you? But anyway, and he did listen to that last week, by the way. But, and she really presses that on him. She does not pull her punches. She wants to steal the deal. So she says, for you are a redeemer. In other words, Boaz, whatever else may be between us, understand that this is your duty. This is your duty under the law of Moses. You are uniquely qualified to rescue me, Boaz. Now you've got to feel a little bit sorry for Boaz at the moment. This is a lot to take in, having been woken from sleep. He's got bed hair, and it's a lot to take in at midnight. You know, the wiping the sleep from his eyes, and this strange woman, A, she's there, and B, she's just proposing to marry him. Well, you can imagine how Ruth is feeling. She must be feeling very vulnerable. She's made a speech. She's taken an enormous risk. And now she's waiting for Boaz's reply. Everything hangs on the thread. He might have taken advantage of her. Who would have known? He might have rebuked her. He's a man of reputation and standing. He might have shamed her. Look at what the Moabitists got up to. He might have understood her actions as wrong. What a risk she took. And everything hangs on Boaz's reply. And we know that he treats her with consummate gentleness and godly care. He blesses her. He interprets her interest in him as an act of hesed, of covenant love toward him. She could have gone after young men, but she wants him. And then he says, I'll do what you want. And her heart must have leapt for joy at that moment. And instead of disaster, it looked like God will richly bless Ruth after all. It's wonderful. And just as our hearts are there with joy, there's that tension is back introduced. It's Hebrew storytelling after all. 
there is one nearer than I. And you kind of groan a bit, don't you, if you're just reading it, you kind of groan a bit, oh no, there's someone else unknown to Naomi or Ruth, who is a closer relative of Eliminate than Boaz. So he has a prior claim, a prior responsibility, and yet nevertheless, because Boaz is such a remarkable man of God, who cares so deeply for Ruth, he determines to take care of this as soon as the sun rises. Throughout that long, restless night, Ruth has risked everything in pursuit of rest. But Naomi wanted for her, in verse 1, rest. And now Boaz has committed himself with a solemn oath and promise, one way or another, to make sure that Ruth finds rest. Now it's tempting to spend our time meditating on Boaz's godliness in the face of temptation. It's a reminder to us, whatever checks and balances we put in place, whatever accountability we have, temptation always finds a way in. I suppose like water finding every crack in the rock. Or water finding every crack, every split in your raincoat when you go out for a walk. But in those moments, the last defence has to be faithfulness, obedience to God. That we have cultivated and we've accumulated when temptation was not assailing us. So there is a spiritual muscle memory that puts God first. It's a little bit like I was talking about this morning, about the importance of church. If church is not important, then everything else will become a muscle memory. But if church is important, church is your muscle memory. And in a similar way, a faithful pattern of obedience to God, even when temptation is not assailing you, will help you stand when the enemy comes. So we find ourselves instinctively fleeing temptation and running to Christ for the grace that we need. The last defence of a heart against sin when temptation strikes is a pattern and a habit of faithful obedience. I can't stress enough the pattern of faithful obedience. We might equally remark on Ruth. In the Hebrew order of the books of the Bible, Ruth follows not judges, as it does in ours, because we go from judges to Ruth, but Proverbs. Did you know that in the Hebrew order? Ruth follows Proverbs. And what do you remember of Proverbs? Proverbs 31. A Proverbs 31 woman. And Proverbs 31, verse 31, says a woman of noble character, her works praise her in the gates which is the language that Boaz uses of her in verse 11. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for my fellow townsmen know you are a worthy woman. Ruth is, Proverbs 31. She is a woman of noble character. She's a woman who models for us courage, determination, to live as a true Israelite, a true child of God, no matter the dangerous, misleading counsel of Naomi. Naomi advises like a Moabite, like a Moabitess. But the big point of the passage takes a different direction. In Boaz's godly obedience, 
ensures Ruth gets the rest that she so urgently needs. Boaz is the agent in her life of God's love and grace, his hesed, his long-suffering love, his covenant mercy. So when Boaz says that there is a redeemer closer than I, all he meant is that there is a relative nearer in relation to it, Elimelech than I am, whose obligation it is to be your kinsman redeemer. But it's hard for us to resist hearing in those words the lesson of the book of Ruth, because the great redeemer of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz is the one to whom Boaz points. By whose obedience rest is provided. Boaz is a type of Christ. Boaz points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we should never forget that Jesus Christ is the closer redeemer to whom Boaz points. Augustine said, didn't he, Lord, thou hast made me for thyself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Isn't that beautiful? Maybe you're restless this afternoon. You've got a restless heart. Maybe you feel like you've got a vagabond heart, wandering, aimless, hopeless, purposeless. You will always be restless until you find your rest in that nearer Redeemer, our Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 11 verse 28, Come to me, all you who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do you long for rest? I do. I long for rest. But thank goodness, thank, thank the Lord, thank the goodness of God that he has provided eternal rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. The promise of fullness for empty hearts is my final point. The persistence of sin in believing hearts, the good news of rest for restless hearts, and finally the promise of fullness for empty hearts. So morning comes, and Boaz, because of the faithful obedience, man of God, makes sure that no one learns about Ruth's midnight adventure. You see his love for her? He covers her. He covers her in every which way. He covers her shame, he protects her, and in verse 15 he tells her to bring the cloak with which she had covered herself in the night, and he fills it with six measures of barley. It's an enormous amount. It's almost like a ludicrous amount. He had to help carry it. He lifts it up and puts it on her. She cannot lift it on her own. And you can imagine Hebrew storytelling again as she staggers down the road back home. She must be out of breath by the time she arrives. And Naomi says, how do you fare, my daughter? The question she asks is the same question that Boaz asked in Hebrew. Who are you, my daughter? That Boaz asked in the middle of the night is the same question that Naomi asked in Hebrew. How do you fare, my daughter? So she's wondering, has Boaz changed you forever like we hoped? Are you the same Ruth coming back in the morning than the Ruth who left the night before. And I imagine Ruth, in exasperation, dumped the grain on the, on the ground and blew the hair from her eyes. I'm trying to be poetic here. And then she told her all that Boaz had done for her. And the punchline which has been kept back from the dialogue between Boaz and Ruth from the threshing floor until the next morning 
you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Naomi thought that she was so clever. Boaz will never know who is playing matchmaker. Well, Boaz had Naomi's number, that's for sure. So he sends a message to Naomi. He's chosen his message very carefully. He courted the mother-in-law. And that's what Boaz did. Courted the mother-in-law. And notice especially the phrase he told her, do not go back empty-handed, which is how Naomi described herself. Remember at the end of chapter one? She came back angry. I went away full. I've come back empty. Well, this is the message for Naomi. You do not need to manipulate circumstances in your insecurity and fear. You really can trust the Lord to provide. The massive hall of barley was a visual aid that the Lord will provide. And Boaz will change, not just Ruth, but Naomi forever. You will no longer be empty. You'll be full and overflowing again. And in the last line of the chapter, Naomi seems to have the message. She gives up her scheming, her bitterness, and she's content to wait and to trust for what the Lord will do. I wonder if you worry about tomorrow. It's easy to worry about tomorrow. And I wonder if past painful experience has made you fearful of the days ahead. And that the days ahead will be as bitter as the days that have gone. And it's easy not to trust the Lord to provide. And that was Naomi's experience, that she was empty. She was running on fumes. She was empty. And the Lord is signalling to Naomi, and maybe to you, that if you would just trust him, if you would just trust him, if you would just trust his Redeemer, Boaz, that emptiness would be lifted. There is no promise, you know, that hardship and sorrow and loss and pain will never again intrude in your life if you're a follower of Jesus. There is no such promise. But there is a promise that emptiness need never characterise your heart again if you trust in Jesus. Your heart can be empty without Christ. But if you trust in him, your heart can be full. Jesus said, I have come that you may have love, life, and life in its fullness, abundant life. I will fill you up to overflowing. And Jesus is the greater than Boaz. Think of that. Jesus is the greater than Boaz. And the signal to us that he means business with our hearts, that he will deliver his promise. And what is that signal? What is that demonstration of his faithfulness that he will not let you go empty? Well, it's the cross, an empty tomb. It's the cross of Christ. It's the empty tomb. He does not give a portion of barley for you. He gave himself. He gave himself for you. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? There is no emptiness of soul for which King Jesus is not the antidote, my friend. There is no emptiness of soul for which Jesus cannot fill. 
because there is a fullness for empty hearts in Jesus. There is rest for restless hearts in Jesus. So when persistent sin fosters even in a believing heart, when that sin rears its head again this week, you may need know where to turn in your hour of need. Not to one another first, though that would be a good thing to do, but to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, who is nearer than Boaz. Nothing in my hand I cling, we sang this morning, simply to thy cross I cling, naked, come to thee for dress, helpless, look to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me saviour, or I die. May the Lord bless the words, let us pray. Father, we thank you for Christ. We pray that you would teach our hearts to run to him, to find their rest in him, to find fullness in him, to find cleansing mercy and grace, to withstand the evil day, and having done it all, to stand. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.